The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on American Flotus, Mary Todd Lincoln. By all appearances, she and her famous husband had no business being together. Vastly different upbringings, different types of friends, and very different physically. But they say opposites attract. So the Lincolns did get together. They said, I do, raised several children, and rose to become the first family of the United States. And while there were good times, there seemed to be more bad times. Losing children, losing a husband, and losing her freedom. The tragic life of the very consequential First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln on this episode of American Flotus. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of historian Alan Lowe, we're uncovering our country's first ladies and their enduring impact within the White House and around the world. In each episode, we're joined by the nation's top historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary women. To help us learn more about the dynamic and somewhat controversial Mary Todd Lincoln is historian and journalist Jason Emerson. He's put together eight books on American history, has published several articles and reviews in both scholarly and popular publications, and has appeared on several TV programs, including Book TV, American History TV, and the History Channel. He's also worked as a National Park Service park ranger at the Lincoln Home National Historic Site, so he definitely knows his stuff when it comes to First Lady Lincoln. Jason, Thanks for joining us on American Flotus. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You make me sound uh, very impressive. <laughs> Jason, you are. It's great to talk with you again. Yeah, it's um, great to be with you. Absolutely, Alan. Uh, rereading The Madness of Mary Lincoln, which of course I'd read years ago, just re- reminded me of how wonderful this book was. And I want to jump right into this story. But before we get to the time when Mary was our first lady, can you tell us a bit about her youth in Kentucky? And specifically, was there any indication then of the emotional issues she would show later? Absolutely. Yeah. Mary's youth is uh, really fascinating. And, you know, when when historians talk about her, they typically stick to her time with Lincoln or her time starting in Springfield. They don't always go back to her childhood. And, um, you know, that's interesting because if you want to know who Mary was, who anybody is, you know, you look at their formative years uh, as a child. So Mary was one of 14 children, six from her mother and eight from her stepmother. So you think about this in Lexington, Kentucky, this big old house, kids of all ages, running, screaming, needing diapers changed. There's slaves everywhere. Her father's got business happening. Her stepmother, uh, other family members coming around. Just think of the the chaos and kind of the, the tumult of a house like that. And so Mary was part of a, of a huge family. And um, there's a great book called The House of Abraham by Stephen Berry, which I always recommend. And at, at one point in the book, he says the Todd home was teeming and tempestuous, which I've always thought was a great way to explain it. Um, and so Mary, you know, she in later life, she likened her childhood to she said it was like living in a boarding house because there's so many people always coming and going. And at one in one letter, she called her childhood desolate. Uh, you know, her mother was dead, her father was busy, 14 kids, and she did not get along with her stepmother at all. 
And, uh, you know, you could, you know, you could speculate that this led later on to Mary's always demanding attention, having a certain amount of entitlement to her life. Um, you know, she had, she was considered a wonderful, heartfelt, loving woman, simultaneously uh, a woman with a very quick temper, a very sharp tongue who could be mean and rude without even thinking about it. And this was all part of growing up in that house. And you know, she didn't even really have a mother. She was raised by the black servant, Mammy Sally, which, you know, that kind of gets in later to uh, her relationship with Elizabeth Keckley, the dressmaker in the White House. So, you know, lots of things going on in her early years in Kentucky. And and there are indications of Mary's later emotional issues. Um, one of the big things, you know, in my book, uh, I consulted with psychiatric experts because uh, I'm not a doctor. And, um, you know, my conclusion based on their opinions and some of their conclusions as well was that Mary most likely suffered from bipolar disorder. And uh, her cousin once wrote that um, when Mary was a child, she said she was much like an April day, sunning all over with laughter one minute, and then the next minute crying as though her heart would break. And there are evidences of that throughout Mary's life, um, by given by witnesses and friends and family. So, and that's, you know, so when I say, you know, I studied Mary Lincoln's mental health from childhood to her death, I mean, it, it goes all the way back to her childhood. So let's skip forward many years to when she met Abraham. How, how did they meet? And what do you think drew them together? Sure. They met in Springfield, Illinois. That's where Mary's oldest sister went, married uh, the son of a former governor. And then their house, uh, the Edwards, their house became a, a salon for high society. So Mary and multiple of her sisters went there, met men, married and settled in Springfield because they all were unhappy with their stepmother. So when it was Mary's turn, she met Abraham Lincoln at a, a party, a salon, a dance. It's been characterized as different things at the Edwards home. And Lincoln was, you know, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, tall, gawky, ugly, um, didn't really fit in. You know, he didn't really know how to speak to a woman. He's very, you know, backwoods down to earth. And, you know, he'd be off by the punch bowl telling jokes with the guys. Um, whereas Mary, of course, was raised in aristocracy. And for some reason, they, you know, picked each other out. They, you know, they caught each other's eye and had a spark. And it turned out that uh, they had a lot in common. You know, both of them had mothers that died when they were young. They had distant fathers. They both loved children. They loved politics. Mary loved politics, which was very unladylike back then. She knew Henry Clay. Her family knew him. And uh, Henry Clay was Abraham Lincoln, what he called his beau ideal of a statesman. And they also both, they loved poetry and literature and books. And so they actually had a lot in common. And, um, you know, there's many different stories of when they met that, uh, you know, they were at a dance and Lincoln walked up to her and said, Miss Todd, I'd like to dance with you in the worst way. And after they were done dancing, she said to her sister, and he sure did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine him not being necessarily very coordinated, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I know they had a bit of a tumultuous courtship, right, where it was on and then off then back on again. Uh, was any of that attributable to those emotional states of Mary, you think? I know that's a, still a bit of a mystery, is it not? It is. You know, that's, uh, you know, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, Mary was courted by all of the most important men in Springfield. I think it's something like five future United States senators, um, including Stephen A. Douglas, as well as her future husband, Abraham, who became the president. And she was very sought after. But 
I think at this time, yeah, she was very temperamental. She had a, a great emotional instability, or maybe we could just say she was mercurial. But um, you know, she was she was also kind of haughty and entitled as she was in the White House, and you know, they got along quite well. But then it seems like the more Lincoln got to know her, the more he kind of felt like he just wasn't, she wasn't really the one for him. He didn't always like the way she treated people, didn't always like her sharp tongue and her sarcastic wit. Um, And then there are stories that he fell in love with uh, Mary's cousin, Matilda Edwards, who also came to stay at the Edwards home. Um, You know, for years, I I didn't buy that story about Matilda Edwards, but um, Michael Burlingame had a book that came out recently an American marriage. And uh, quite honestly, uh, that book uh, changed my mind about a couple of things. And one was the Matilda Edwards issue. And basically, you know, Lincoln kind of fell, you know, quote unquote, in love with Matilda. And I think also because he was kind of getting tired of Mary Todd in a certain degree. But then, you know, Matilda didn't want anything to do with him. And then, you know, after a year and a half apart, now it's kind of the same for all of us. You know, you break up with someone and then you realize, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and and they did get back together, uh, which then leads to, you know, further debates in the the Mary Lincoln canon of did they really love each other or did they not uh, when they got married? Were they really happy in their marriage or were they not? And that's you know, kind of that conversation really begins with why they broke up and why they reconciled. It seems to me they had... A, a loving marriage. Am I, I, I'm, I don't know where you come down in that debate, but certainly there were, there were moments where sh- that mercurial temper came out. So I guess, where do you come down in that debate in terms of the, the level of affection in this marriage? And also how did Abraham then deal with those outbursts from Mary once they were married and living there in Springfield? Sure. Yeah. I think that, you know, I do think that they loved each other very much. You know, when you think about, you know, we're all, you know, we all change throughout our lives. Uh, because of you know our age, our circumstances, when you buy a house, when kids come along, you change a job, whatever. And so, you know, if you think about, there are distinct stages of Mary's life when she is a different person. You know, her childhood is one, her Springfield years as a middle class wife and mother is something, and then when she becomes first lady of the land, she's almost a completely different person. And so, their relationship in the White House, I think, is much different than their relationship in Springfield. I think they did love each other very much. And I think that Abraham Lincoln, one reason I think they were a good match was because he knew how to deal with her. You know, he was a, a laid back person. You know, that one of the, my favorite sayings was, you know, she would berate him and yell at him and, you know, call him sloppy or call him ugly, you know, tell him to put on his jacket, comb his hair, things like that. And one of his friends once said, or probably more than once, you know, why do you let her treat you that way. And Lincoln said, you know, if you knew how much good it does her and how little harm it does me, you would not wonder that I am meek. And so I think he just understood these were things she had to get out. Very typical of bipolar people. She would snap and just go off the rails on people. And then she'd come back later uh, apologizing, or at least maybe not apologizing, but trying to make up for what she recognized as a kind of an illogical outburst. And so, you know, he knew that if she was upset, sometimes he could talk her down. Sometimes he would yell at her. Sometimes more often than not, he would just leave the house, sometimes take the kids, sometimes by himself. And he would just go away, come back later after it had blown over and she had calmed down. So 
And I think that's what that's what she needed. She needed someone like that, not someone she could totally dominate, but not someone who would, um, you know, get in her face and scream back and just have yelling matches all day long. So you you mentioned when Mary gets to the White House, she's first lady, a different person in, in many ways. And she had to deal with a lot of criticism during those years. What was that criticism? Where did it originate? And how did Mary address it? Yeah, there there was a lot. You know, she she had her own issues that she created, but but especially at the beginning, I agree with Ruth Painter Randall, who wrote um, Mary Lincoln Biography of Marriage, which is a, a quite an excellent book. It has its you know it was done in the 1950s, so it's a little different than the way things are written now as far as social mores and understandings. But I think she was right in what she said that when Mary got to Washington. She couldn't win no matter what she did because, you know, she was from the West. So all these Eastern women just thought, oh, she's this uncouth Westerner. We don't want anything to do with her. She doesn't know what she's doing as far as being the leading hostess of Washington. Northerners didn't like her because she was from Kentucky. So they figured that she was a rebel and a traitor. Southerners hated her because they thought that she was a traitor because she was with the North. And then um, besides being East versus West, the women of D.C. didn't like her because they just thought, you know, she wasn't one of them. Her husband was not a lifelong politician. So, you know, when she first gets there, people were condescending to her. A lot of times they would tell her what to do, how to do it, how to run the White House. And, you know, Mary, you know, she knew what to do. She was raised in aristocracy. She knew how to dress and how to entertain and how to decorate, how to dance, how to have an intelligent conversation. She spoke fluent French. So she already knew what she was doing. But on top of that, you know, she was a very proud and arrogant woman at times. And so when these uh, DC women tried to tell her what to do, she would get right up in their face and basically say, don't tell me, I know what I'm doing, get out of here. And she would stand up to them, which then of course made them dislike her even more. So no matter what she did, um, she couldn't win. And then the fact that as the war went on, she just had, she was really tone deaf as far as, you know, there's a war going on and, and every weekend, every couple of weeks, she'd go to New York and she'd buy food and she'd, uh, or buy food for parties. They'd have huge parties. She'd buy clothing. Uh, they would have, you know, immense parties. And, you know, the one on February 5th of uh, 62, where she got just demolished in the press by saying, you know, Mrs. Lincoln spent thousands of dollars on food and clothing and decorations, and our soldiers are in the field and they don't even have blankets. And, you know, that criticism upset her because she felt she deserved it. She was the first lady. She thought she was a queen in many ways, and she felt she deserved these things. And people were very short-sighted by not allowing her to be the greatest woman in the land as she felt she was and she deserved. So... You know, she had that thing with the press where they just kept criticizing her. They never tried to understand her, but then she also never tried to understand them or show them that she had a softer side as well. And of course, during those years, um, they lost their son, Willie, died during, yes. the, during the presidency. And of course, both of them um, terribly impacted by that. How would you describe the the effect of that tragic loss on on Mary? Oh, it was absolutely devastating. I mean, they had lost their son, Eddie, uh, in 1850 when he was four. Uh, and, you know, this time Willie was really every historian, all the Lincoln's friends, everyone agreed he was the apple of both of his parents' eyes. 
very much like Abraham, you know, intelligent, uh, very um, empathetic, emotional. Um, but, you know, he was very much like a Todd. He looked like his brother, Robert, you know, looked like a Todd. Um, but his parents loved him dearly. And when he died from typhoid, um, Mary took it incredibly badly. She blamed herself for many reasons. You know, basically, she, as I said, she was having parties, she was shopping, she was having you know, her coterie gatherings and, and acting like a queen and doing nothing for anyone other than herself. And after Willie died, she actually toned back on all of her partying and spending. That's when she started visiting wounded soldiers in the hospitals. Um, you know, she would bring fruit, she would write letters for them, and she would just sit and visit with them, which she never told the press. That was one thing they never really got out to the American people was that she did these things. But she did that because she was trying to atone because she felt God was punishing her for her selfishness by taking away her son. Which is ironic because actually having that train of thought just shows how selfish she was <laughs> that her son dying was all about her. But, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, including her son, Robert, believed that it was Willie's death that really started her spiral to what later was insanity for which he had her committed in 1875. Uh, Elizabeth Keckley, her uh, dressmaker in the White House, uh, her book came out in 66. 1866. And uh, so there's a lot of things in there that I, that I really believe are true. You know, when you get into the whole world of Lincoln books, um, the longer you go away from Lincoln's death, the more people try to write themselves into his story and his legend. So you can't believe everything you read, but Keckley, you know, writing so soon afterwards. And as she said, she wanted to help Mrs. Lincoln by getting the truth out. You know, she told the story of after Willie died, Mary was distraught. She wouldn't leave her room. She wouldn't eat. She wouldn't sleep. She wouldn't change her clothes. And finally, Abraham Lincoln brought her to the window of the executive mansion and pointed across the river to what was a, a sanitarium. And he said, um, mother, do you see that building over there? Try and control your grief or it will drive you mad and we will have to send you there. Which is interesting because it's really the first time anybody brings up having her committed is actually Abraham Lincoln, not her son, Robert, who later did it. So, um, yeah, Willie's death had a, a huge impact on Mary that really can't be overestimated. Yeah, and, and, of course, another step on that road was the death of Abraham. Right. Um, the, the nature of that death with Mary being right there beside him as he is assassinated. Can you talk to us a bit about the effect of that on her. And also, I think it was very interesting. You talk about Abraham as a kind of buffer. So you spoke earlier, how he could, how he could take in her, her mercurial um, actions, but he also served as kind of a buffer between her and the outside world in many ways you state. Yeah. I, th that's what I think. I think that, um, you know, he knew, as I said, he knew exactly how to handle her when she needed a firm hand, when she needed a loving hand, when he needed to just walk away and ignore her. And, you know, in much the same way that um, she, she always said, as did other people, that one thing she contributed to, to his presidency, his greatness as a politician and, a, and as a leader was that she was a better judge of character than he was. He, he saw the good in everyone, whereas she saw people for what she thought they were. And, and so she would look out for him in that way. And I think Lincoln did the same thing as far as, you know, who he would allow within their circle or, or whom he would, would or would not talk to, you know, keep her away from people, try to keep the home life 
uh, on an even keel so as not to upset her. Um, you know, when Mary was deathly afraid of lightning and thunderstorms and, you know, he'd be out traveling the judicial circuit so he wouldn't be home, but he would, you know, hire a neighbor boy to come stay with her until Robert was old enough, you know, occasionally he'd try to come home, but not really. He usually stayed out there all the time. But, um, so I think he knew exactly how to treat her. And, you know, she once wrote in a letter, uh, she said, you know, Mr. Lincoln was from my 18th year, uh, husband, lover, father, brother, all, all to me, truly my all. And, uh, and I think that's true. He, he treated her on all those different levels, which is what she needed. And, um, and I think that that definitely helped kind of anchor her to sanity. You know, when she was getting out of control, he would put her back in place with a loving hand, not, you know, not in a, a horrible, forcible, forcible, uh, in a forcible way like that. Um, and so when he died, you know, then she immediately clung on to Tad, their youngest son. And then when he died, Mary really had nobody left because Robert was, you know, he was an adult. He was married. He had kids. He had a job. He couldn't give her that attention. She demanded attention all the time. So then she was adrift and that made things much worse. So I, I wondered when he, when she returns to Illinois after the death of, of Abraham, she was not treated well by the, by the public. It seemed to turn against her. Why was there not more sympathy and support for the wife of a martyred president? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I believe that was Mary's own fault uh, because of the way she treated people when she was first lady, she felt like she was the queen and she treated people that way. You know, they were all beneath her senators, congressmen, regular people, everyone was beneath her, including reporters. So, you know, after her husband died, you know, all of these people that she had berated and condescended to and ignored, suddenly she wanted help from them. You know, she wanted to get a pension. She wanted to get the remainder of her husband's salary. She wanted, you know, fundraisers throughout the country to, to pay for the rest of her life. And nobody wanted to help her because of the way she had treated them for four years. So Congress didn't want to give her a pension. The media didn't like her, so they reported on nothing but negative news. And so when she went back to Springfield, I mean, there are so many reminiscences. There was one, um, I forget the gentleman's name, but he said, oh, everyone in Springfield, we loved Mr. Lincoln. He was one of us. He was a wonderful man. Mrs. Lincoln, well, that's a different story that I don't really want to talk about. <laughs> so, um, and that was, you know, and she did treat people badly in Springfield. Not the same as at the White House, but again, she was, you know, a bit entitled and, and haughty in certain ways. And so it's all about how she treated others. And then when time came that she needed other people, they were not interested in helping her because she had never really helped them. So you, you mentioned Robert Todd Lincoln, the eldest son earlier. So can you remind us where he had, where had he been during the war and how did he step in now to assume leadership of the uh, of the family after Abraham's assassination? Sure. Yeah. Robert, uh, he was in Harvard College. He went there in 1860 and he was there from 60 to 64. Now, the minute Fort Sumter was fired upon, he wanted to enlist in the army, but his parents wouldn't let him uh, because Mary was terrified that he would be killed because Eddie had died in 1850 and she couldn't bear the thought of losing another son. And Abraham Lincoln, this is one place where he acquiesced to her, you know, sheer terror of this, even though both he and Robert just got excoriated in the press. Abraham Lincoln, oh, he'll send other kids to die, but not his own son. And Robert's a shirker and a coward because he won't go to war. And so when he graduated, 
He tried to join the army. His parents said no. So Robert went to law school at Harvard for one semester. So finally, as the war is winding down, he was you know, kind of badgering his father until his father said yes. And he put him on Grant's staff as an assistant adjutant general of volunteers. So Robert was in the army for, oh, I think it was uh, two or three months and he was on Grant's staff and and you know he would run messages sometimes uh, between the lines. He, uh, whenever his father, the president, would visit, Robert was always his kind of guide and liaison around headquarters. Robert was at the siege of Petersburg. Robert was actually present at the surrender at Appomattox, and he was personally presented to General Lee. And you know later in his life, Robert died in 1926. Um, he was often remembered not only as Lincoln's son but also as one of the last living people to be present at the surrender at Appomattox. So, you know, at the assassination, Robert suddenly became the head of the family. So he um, resigned from the military. He was going to stay in D.C. and study law there. He was probably engaged uh, to uh, Mary Harlan. It's unclear, but I think they were engaged. And he dropped everything. You know, at that time, he became the head of the family. So he took charge of everything. They moved to Chicago. Uh, he lived with his mother and Tad for a while until he just couldn't bear it anymore and got his own apartment. But he studied law out there. You know, he broke up with his girlfriend, although they reconciled later. And Robert, uh, he was miserable because he had a life planned out and he had to, it was completely destroyed and he had to change it to do his duty as the oldest son. And as the oldest son with a mother who began to more and more manifest some serious behavioral issues, particularly, as you said, after the, the death of Tad in particular, how, yes. how did that dissent manifest and, and what did Robert do to try to address those growing concerns? Yeah, well, Mary's, you know, her, her mental state, it was always fluctuating. And uh, really after, you know, Willie, then Abraham, and then after Tad, it was deteriorating. You know, Mary had many symptoms. You know, she one of her symptoms, which personally I don't put a lot of stock in, even though it is a symptoms, was monomania, was spending tons of money on things she didn't need and didn't use. I don't really blame her for that. I mean, you know, sometimes if I get sad, I, I buy too many books. Absolutely. <laughs> you I'm know, right there with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but Mary had serious issues. She had delusions. She had hallucinations, uh, paranoia. She had she thought people were following her. She thought that cities were on fire or were about to be on fire. She was in Robert's house during the great fire of Chicago and she was never in danger, but she saw it all happen. And after that, she had this amazing fear of fire all the time. And so, you know, Robert, he tried to help her. He hired nurses to be with her, but he couldn't be there all the time. Eventually he hired Pinkerton agents to follow her, to keep her safe because he learned she was carrying, uh, I think it was $50,000 sewn into her petticoats and just walking the streets of Chicago. And Robert was thinking, my God, if anyone finds that out, she will be immediately killed, dumped in an alley so that they can steal that money from her. So, you know, she, he was trying to keep her safe. And so, you know, this all came to a head in um, 75. Mary was uh, really in the kind of manic, depressive, you know, she, fluctuations. And she was convinced one day she was in Florida. She was convinced Robert was at death's door and nobody could convince her otherwise. So she hopped a train to go to Chicago. She, she thought people were following her and, and the wandering Jew was trying to poison her and had poisoned her. And 
So Robert was telegraphing every train station along the way saying, you know, is Mrs. Lincoln there? What is her mental state? What is her physical state? Is she okay? And then it just got worse and worse from there. And so Robert, eventually he consulted with three of his father's best friends, uh, David Davis, Leonard Sweat, and John Todd Stewart. And Stewart was also Mary's cousin. And they had all known Mary for over 20 years. And then eventually they all agreed, yeah, she is insane and you need to take care of her. Uh, and so Robert consulted with seven medical experts, the best he could find. And uh, a couple, I think two of them had previously treated her. Uh, one of them was her physician and the others were told about her case by Robert and the other doctors. And they all unanimously agreed that she was a danger to herself and other people and that if Robert did not do something to take care of her, something awful would happen. And, and under the Victorian you know, uh, mores of that time, that would have been Robert's fault. If his mother had been murdered and robbed, that was his fault. You know, if she killed herself, that was his fault because he was supposed to take care of her. And one thing that always struck me that's never in any book uh, except for mine is that um, all the doctors told Robert, they're like, you know, your mother has this amazing paranoia and fear about fire that everything's going to be on fire. And they said, you know, any person with a delusion like that could at any minute just jump out of a window because they might think the building they're in is on fire and that's the only way they could escape. And if she did that, obviously she would die uh, if she's in a big hotel. So everyone agreed that Mary was insane. Robert had to do something. And under the law at that time in Illinois, the only thing he could do was to have her arrested and brought to trial for insanity which is ultimately what he did. What was that trial like? Was it a fair trial? Um, how was that put together? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, nowadays, we wouldn't think it's fair. But back then, it, it was fair. Um, bef just a few years before that trial, a new law had been passed. So before that, any woman or child could be uh, institutionalized for any reason by a man. And the reason only had to be, yeah, she's crazy. And they'd lock her up. And so that got changed just a couple of years before Mary's trial. So under the new law, a woman or a minor had to be brought to a trial, a jury of 12 of her, I mean, it was all men, but 12 of their peers, and at least one of them had to be a doctor. And so they went to court and, you know, there were lawyers for both sides. Well, actually, technically, Mary did not, uh, did not have to have a lawyer at that time. Uh, it was not an automatic right, but Robert... And Leonard Sweat and David Davis made sure that she did have a lawyer so that no one could say later that they had railroaded her into the asylum. So uh, under the law, she was supposed to be arrested, taken to court in handcuffs, which Robert was going to allow to happen because he was following the law. And Leonard Sweat said, no, we can't do that. You know, it's your mother. It's Abraham Lincoln's widow. So he spent a couple of hours talking her into the courtroom. Um, they had a, a lawyer there. Isaac Arnold, who was a friend of Abraham Lincoln. And um, yeah, at one point he said to Leonard Sweat, he's like, I can't defend her because I think she's insane too. And Leonard Sweat said, do your duty, defend her. And so there it was, a, you know, the trial lasted a couple of hours. Uh, Robert testified, um, you know, there were boy 20 some people that testified, doctors, hotel people, pharmacists, um, whatnot. And, you know, in a very short amount of time, the jurors declared Mary insane. And um, you know, later it was said that uh, Leonard Sweat said that 
they didn't even put their whole case in. They didn't even say all the evidence they had about her mental state because Robert only wanted the public, because there were reporters there, they only wanted the public to know the bare minimum so as not to embarrass her or his father's memory. And I'm sure to embarrass himself as well, because Robert was a lawyer at the time. So it was, I mean, it was a full out jury trial. Um, it was very fair. People, you know, other books and historians say it wasn't, that it was a kangaroo court and a railroad job. Those are outright lies. That is not how it went down. And there is no evidence to suggest that it went that way. With the evidence you, you have in your book, and and certainly it, it, it shows that Robert went beyond any normal methods of trying to help his mother, right. consulting all these people, making sure that it was a fair process. Why has he come in for so much criticism over the years? I always say that there, in my opinion, there's three main reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, people think of Robert, you know, Robert, eventually he became, you know, he was a secretary of war. He was a minister to Great Britain and he became president of the Pullman company. And he was, he was a true captain of industry. His last couple of decades, he was a businessman and he was a, a multimillionaire. And so a lot of people, they don't like him because they think, oh, he's, he's so unlike his father, you know, the prairie lawyer, you know, his father would have hated Robert. Well, no, Abraham Lincoln was a corporate lawyer. <laughs> I mean, he, he defended railroads. So he would have been extremely proud of Robert. That would, Robert became exactly what his father wanted him to become, I think. But so he gets a bad rap. Oh, he's nothing like his father. Another reason is that later in life, Robert hated journalists, hated them. He saw the way they treated his parents and then the way they, they treated him. And he felt like all journalists were either idiots or liars. And because of that, he didn't like to talk to them. And so he wouldn't talk to them. So they would just make it up. And so that, but because they made it up, he wouldn't talk to them. And so it was just a vicious circle. And so there was a lot of news articles about him that were just, you know, made up because he, they didn't like him because they thought, oh, he's too good to talk to us. But the real reason Robert has such a bad rap, I don't want to single anyone out, but it's the truth is um, there was a book in 1987, a biography of Mary Lincoln by uh, historian Jean Baker. And in that book, uh, she paints Robert <laughs> really as the kind of the son of Satan and everything bad in Mary's life after the assassination was Robert's fault. You know, the way she paints him is horrible. And her book, ever since it came out, and still to this day, is the go-to book for anyone who wants to read about Mary Lincoln. And because of that, and what she says about Robert, that has become the mainstream view of Robert. But before 1987, Robert's reputation was nothing like that at all. It was he had a very good reputation by historians that he was a good son who did what he could. Um, and so that really, and you know, that in the 80s, that was really when, you know, feminist revisionism, general, you know, revisionism of history, you know, bringing minorities, bringing women to the forefront of history that was dominated by white men. That's when that all started. And so, you know, Jean Baker's book is, uh, is part of that movement. And so she's focusing on Mary and less on the white men in Mary's life, which is the context of where that book came from. So, well, at least she called him, you know, the son of Satan, not Satan himself. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so there you go. So let me. How long did was Mary in Bellevue, and then who were the Bradwells, and how did they play a role in getting her out? Yeah. So Mary was, uh, you know, under the law, she was to be committed to a sanitarium for one year. 
Now, Robert could have had her sent to a state institution, which is, you know, like, uh, you know, we all know the, the movie in the book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Nurse Ratchet and all that horrible things. He could have done that and he didn't. He sent her to a private sanitarium. And, but Mary was only there for four months. And then after that, she went to stay with her sister, Elizabeth Edwards. And that is because of the Bradwells. So the Bradwells were interesting couple. Uh, James Bradwell was a lawyer. Later, he was a, a judge and a state legislator. Uh, Myra Bradwell was uh, an amazing woman. She actually was the first woman. Uh, she had passed the Illinois bar exam to be a lawyer, and the state would not allow her to practice law because she was a married woman. Therefore, she was under contract with her husband as his wife, so she could not enter into a legal contract with a client because she was already under contract with her husband. So she appealed that to the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, um, and they actually found against her. And so she helped her husband with his law practice. Uh, eventually, she created the Chicago Legal News, which was the most widely read legal newsletter in America, which I love because all these men wouldn't let her practice, but they would take her advice on how they should practice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so Myra Bradwell, you know, she was an abolitionist and then she was uh, in favor of women's rights, uh, amazingly intelligent woman. And so for Mary's first uh, two or three months in Bellevue Place, and there, the records still exist of how her time there was going, she was improving greatly, doing really, really well. And then Myra Bradwell, Mary wrote Myra Bradwell a letter, and then the Bradwell started visiting her. And all of a sudden, Mary wanted to get out, and she started complaining about how she was treated and how she was a prisoner. And you know, long story short, it's a, kind of a long story, but basically the Bradwells got her upset, and they agitated her to the point where Mary just wanted to get out of the asylum. So eventually her doctor told Robert, I can't help her anymore. She's too upset. And yeah, she can stay here, but I, I won't be able to help her. She wants to go live with her sister. Let her go there. So Robert did. And basically he said, uh, okay, you know, you can spend eight months there, but if things go badly, you're going back to the sanitarium. And at one point he even wrote to his aunt and uncle and he said, uh, he said, I am very grateful for everything my mother has ever done for me, but being grateful is not enough. I will do what I must to keep her safe and protect her, even if that means doing something that is against her will. So one year later, Robert petitioned the court to say that his mother was restored to sanity and allow her to be free. Robert was her conservator of her property, or restored to reason it was. The court um, found Mary restored to reason, and so then uh, she was free from the sanitarium, but she was only there, honestly, for four months. How did she spend the rest of her life after that, and did she ever reconcile with Robert? Yeah, she uh, almost immediately fled to Europe, and she felt that she had to get away for two reasons. She wanted to get away from Robert because she was afraid he would have her committed again. And she also, she just wanted to leave America because she felt, and she wrote in a letter to her sister, that everyone looked at her like she was crazy. And she said, you know, if I, if I were to say the mood is made of green cheese, people would smile and nod their head and agree with me. And I just can't deal with that. Um, and Mary always loved Europe. You know, she went there for a couple of years with Tad in the late 1860s. And, you know, she was very 
cosmopolitan, wanted to be, you know, kind of like the European royalty. And so she was there for uh, four years, did not speak to Robert that entire time. And Robert was heartbroken about it. Um, but um, Mary did send presents to Robert's daughter, who was named Mary after her grandmother. And she would send gifts. So Robert said, you know, my only solace is that she sends presents and letters to my daughter, even though she won't speak to me. And hopefully one day we can reconcile. So Mary came back to America in 1880. And by this time she was getting older. She was in very bad physical health. Uh, she had fallen off a stool while hanging a picture and severely damaged her back and her hip. And she had issues with her legs. She had issues with her eyes. Um, now doctors speculate she might've had untreated diabetes. And so she came back to America. And uh, by 1881, Robert was secretary of war under president Garfield. And Mary was back in Springfield living with her sister, Elizabeth Edwards. And Robert was traveling out to uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to inspect the fort as Secretary of War. And on his way, he stopped in Springfield and reconciled with his mother. There's no evidence of how this occurred, but I'm you know 99.9% .9 certain that Elizabeth Edwards made that happen because um, she, she was very much like Mary's mother. And she always regretted that Robert and his mother didn't speak, as did Robert. And Robert and Elizabeth were very, very close. So I think that she created that reconciliation. And so for the next uh, year, a little over a year of Mary's life, Robert would visit her every couple of weeks. Usually he'd bring his daughter Mary with her. Um, when Mary, who did get a pension after her husband was assassinated, she got $2,000 a year. But when uh, James Garfield was assassinated, his wife got $5,000 a year. So you can imagine how Mary felt about that. <laughs> so um, she petitioned to get hers increased. And actually, Robert and his wife, whose name was also Mary, they worked very diligently behind the scenes in Washington to get his mother's pension raised, which they did ultimately. Did, did the bipolar disorder manifest in Europe or when she came back to the States? You know, interestingly, it doesn't seem like it did to any serious degree. So when she was in Europe, um, not, a, not a lot of letters exist from her time there. The ones that did exist are all about her money and financial matters. And then the, the letters that I found um, that are part of my book, those are actually a little bit more personal, but those are all very sane and cogent and rational letters. And she was taking care of her money. She wasn't overspending. And so, you know, a lot of people will, people who defend Mary say, well, see, that just shows she was never crazy. Robert railroaded her. He was, he was trying to steal her money. And I disagree. I think it shows that her time in Bellevue Place helped her. I think that it showed her she needed to be a little better with how she acted. But I also think it put fear in her that if she didn't act the way that was, you know, so-called normal, that she would be committed again. So there's definitely some self-interest in there, but, but, you know, Mary did have a lot of quirks. She still did buy things. Um, you know, she would only, she wouldn't use electricity, even though there was electricity by then she would only use candles. She wouldn't use gas lighting, um, because she felt that gas lighting was the devil's handiwork. And, you know, sometimes she would sit and have conversations with her husband who of course wasn't in the room 
Uh, she only slept on one side of the bed because the other side was Mr. Lincoln's side. And so, you know, supposedly like the, the kids of Springfield, you know, they, they'd walk by the Edwards home. And, oh, that's the crazy old lady lives up there who only lights candles. And, um, but you know, part of her mania for clothing still existed. You know, she had, um, I don't remember the number. I think it was like 68 trunks full of clothing that she traveled with. And her sister, Elizabeth, got upset because it took up an entire room. And Mary was always, she said she's always too ill and too tired to visit, to socialize, to take a carriage ride. But she would spend all day, every day, going through every trunk, unfolding and refolding every piece of clothing or jewelry or whatever was in the trunks. And you know, Elizabeth said, well, you know, if she's too tired to do this, how come she can do that all day long? Um, and Elizabeth got upset because her maid quit. <laughs> her maid lived in the room underneath the storeroom, which had supposedly 8,000 pounds of Mary's trunks. And the maid was afraid the floor would collapse and kill her. Oh my gosh. So she quit. <laughs> and so Elizabeth was upset. She blamed Mary for that. So. Right. <laughs> now you mentioned letters earlier and you fulfilled the dream of many historian by discovering the long lost insanity letters of Mary Lincoln. So can you tell us yes. what those are, how you found them and why they're so very important? Oh yeah. That was uh that was a great day. Um, yeah. So for, you know, I've been studying Lincoln now for over 20 years and you know the um and his family and the the tale of uh what have been called the lost insanity letters of mary have been well known um and been sought for close to 100 years now um and those were you know it was known that mary when she was in the sanitarium she had written uh, a score of letters to myra bradwell and other people but those letters had never been found so the question was, you know, what did those letters say? Did they show that she was literally insane or did they show that she was completely sane and she was railroaded into the asylum by Robert who wanted to steal her money or by her husband's friends who just wanted to get rid of her because she was annoying and noisy and embarrassing to them? Uh, you know, what did the letter show? And so, you know, there was, um, I think at least five other historians who had tried to find these letters and they wrote about it in their books. No one could ever find them. So I was uh, writing my biography of Robert Lincoln. That was actually the first book I ever contracted for, even though I think it was my third book published because um, it took me almost 10 years to do it. But um, so I was researching Robert. I was at his house, Hildeen in Manchester, Vermont, which uh, still exists today. It's a private uh, historic site. It's amazing. I highly recommend anyone who's interested to go check it out. But when I went there, um, you know, the the organization that ran it was just a bunch of of local denizens of Manchester, and so the house was just piled full of stuff. And they they kind of had a cataloging sorting system, but not really. All the tags had fallen off. Things were just floor to ceiling stacked up. And so I went there in two thousand five and. Um, you know, they had just hired a new curator historian and he was in the midst of trying to go through everything, see what was there, what wasn't there, what was important, what wasn't. And so, um, you know, I go up there to do research. And, uh, so he let me loose in Robert's, Robert's secretary's office, which was, you know, a gorgeous room, all wood paneling, and it's full of drawers and boxes and shelving, all full of a Robert's original papers. And so he, you know, he said, okay, I, he said, you know, go ahead. And if you find anything interesting, let me know. Cause he was still trying to go through the entire house, 25 room 
mansion. And so, you know, I'll never forget. I, I put on the white gloves, you know, I pulled down the first box, just inches, inches of dust on top of it, no fingerprints, you know, and I think no one had really looked through those boxes probably since Robert died in 26, maybe since his wife died in 36. Uh, and it was just a gold mine of information about Robert, his father, his mother, his children. You know, he knew every president from his father up until the twenties, he was in the civil war. I mean, he was, it was unbelievable. His life was incredible and it was all just there. So I'm looking through all these things and, and I find a letter talking about these lost insanity letters. So of course I knew immediately what this was about. So then I you know, dig through everything else. I find a second letter about this and that was all I found. So then those got me on the trail and it turns out that these letters I found showed that um, after Robert died, uh, Mrs. Myra Pritchard, who was Myra Bradwell's granddaughter, she had these lost letters and she wrote a book about them. And she came to Hildeen one day and, to meet with Robert's widow and said, hey, I've got these letters. I wrote a book. I've got a publishing contract. Just wanted to let you know as a courtesy, you know. And so Mary Harlan Lincoln wrote back and said, wow, that's wonderful. Yes, why don't you come? Let's visit. And you know, maybe I can help you with this. And so instead of going to visit with her, Mary Harlan Lincoln sent her lawyer. And instead of helping her, the lawyer said, you can't publish that book. And if you do, we will sue you for everything you're worth. Because at that time... Uh, letters were owned by the people who wrote them, not by the recipients. That changed in in law a little bit later on, but uh, so at that time, Mary Harlan Lincoln was technically the owner of the letters. So they had this legal correspondence back and forth. So I found the Lincoln side of that um, um, in those two letters. So I thought, you know, I've been to every Lincoln Museum archive in America. Let me try to track down the Bradwell family. So I found the Bradwell's last living descendant. Uh, I think he was in Wisconsin and he had a whole file. He had all the legal documentation about this transaction about, and it turns out that Mary Harlan Lincoln, you know, threatened to sue, ended up, she bought the book manuscript off of Mrs. Pritchard. She bought out the publishing contract and she suppressed everything. And so, so then I had the two legal sides, but I didn't have the letters. So then I thought, well, if it's a legal thing, let me try to track down Robert's attorneys and his descendants. So I did. I found the son of Robert's attorney. His, his name was Freddie Towers, the son's name. And uh, you know, I'll never forget. I called him up. It was an August day in uh, 2005, I believe it was. And and I said, I'm I'm writing a biography of Robert Lincoln. He, oh, daddy loved Robert Lincoln. I remember going to Hill Dean and, oh, I remember riding the Pullman cars with Mrs. Lincoln. She was such a wonderful woman. And, you know, we had this great chat and I was just about to say, you know, well, the reason I'm calling is, and he says, you know what? We just found a steamer trunk up in our attic that belonged to my father. And it's full of these letters that Mary Todd Lincoln wrote when she was in an insane asylum. Do you oh think God. those are worth anything? <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I said, that's why I'm calling you. So it turns out uh, they had a steamer trunk in their attic. It had been there for 50 years. They didn't know it was there. It was in the corner. No markings. The markings of it said FN Towers Lincoln trunk, but that was facing the wall. So it was just a trunk. And it was full of thousands of Lincoln family documents, mostly Robert and his children. But there was also a couple things uh, from Abraham and Mary. There was one letter from Mary's father, I remember. And then there was. Um, 
the legal correspondence and Mary's missing letters and the unpublished manuscript about the letters from Myra Pritchard. As you looked at those letters, what did they tell you about her mental state? It was fascinating. You know, it, um, there was no, I have to I'll be honest, there was no huge smoking gun. There was nothing that showed she was totally insane, nothing that showed she was totally sane. The one thing that really shocked me, that, that what they showed was that, so the, the story had always been Mary was in the asylum, Myra Pritchard showed up and got her out because Myra Pritchard went, did this public publicity tour to get Mary Lincoln out of the asylum. And really the main thing these letters showed was that Mary Lincoln actually got herself out of the asylum, but she enlisted Myra Bradwell as her assistant. Uh, so that, you know, and that shows also that Mary, you know, part of her uh, mental illness was that um, she was, she could be very sane and lucid on, on most subjects. But when you brought up a subject like money, she was not sane or her husband also, you know, that was uh, something that was not sane. So, but you know, these letters filled in a lot of gaps. There were some letters from when she was in Europe. And as I said, there were no personal letters from Europe in existence. So there was a few of those in there. Um, But there was, you know, there was a letter that she wrote to James Bradwell that when you read it, um, it reads literally like a press release. And I have no doubt she meant him to send that to newspapers to be published because she laments her condition and her state and how she just wants to be let free. And um, they never did that. But that's, you know, after being a journalist for almost 25 years, I'm, I, I looked at that and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of like a press release right there. So, but no, it was definitely an amazing, an amazing thing. Every historian's dream to find a trunk in an attic full of missing documents. And uh, well, congratulations to you, Jason. That's amazing. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting there, you know, there's, you know, the Lincoln field is, um, it's wonderful. I love all my colleagues, uh, but it's a very cutthroat field of endeavor to be a historian. I had not noticed that, Jason. I had not noticed that. (laughs) Yep. I'm sure you did. (laughs) And so, you know, at first when it came out that I found these letters, you know, I was, uh, boy, how old was I? I was in my late twenties when I did that. And so, um, everyone's like, who the hell's this kid? He found these letters. Who does he think he is? (laughs) You know, nobody believed that they were real. But then when it when it was proven that they were real, like, who, who the hell is this kid? He thinks he could come in here and find these letters we couldn't find. And so that was interesting. And then uh, yeah, I went to the Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, and they have a program called the Ghosts of the Library. And uh, at one point in, in the program, it says, and what about Mary Lincoln's missing insanity letters? Will anyone ever find those? And I remember sitting in the in the seats there watching it, just almost like bouncing up and down, thinking, "I know, I know, <laughs> I think I just did find those." And uh, so it was inter- it was it was really amazing. And uh, yeah, so that was my my first book was the Madness of Mary Lincoln because uh, I found those letters. So I paused my biography of Robert and wrote this one before someone else um, got access to these letters that I had found. All right, Jason, a.k.a. Indiana Jones. Uh, <laughs> could you find in the lost treasure? I'm impressed. I know. <laughs> I just have a couple quick questions. So physically, yeah. I have a question. Abraham was well above six feet tall, right? Can you describe yes. Mary physically, especially compared to her very tall husband? Absolutely. Yeah, he was six foot four. Mary was five foot two. And so that's why they were never photographed together because Mary 
was embarrassed by their height difference. You know, Lincoln, Lincoln would joke about it. You know, when their first son, when Mary was pregnant with Robert, he told his friends, well, I hope the kid doesn't have one leg like mine and one leg like Mary's. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they were, you know, that was a huge difference. Uh, Mary was also kind of on the, uh, I don't want to say portly side. She was, um, I I don't know a good word for it, Um, but you know, she wasn't, she wasn't skinny. You know, Lincoln was thin as a rail. Mary had a little bit more meat on her bones. And so there was also that difference as well. But, you know, Mary was considered you know, gorgeous at the time, which is why she had so many suitors in Springfield. And Abraham was not. Yes, Abraham was not. You know, <laughs> as he once said, someone accused him of being two-faced. And as he said, if I had another face, do you really think I'd wear this one? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, these two are completely opposite in, in just about every way. They really were. And, you know, that's, I think about that. I'm like, you know, people say opposites attract and uh, they, they definitely were. I guess so. Mary is such an essential and tragic part of our civic history. Jason, why do you think it's so important for today's public to still learn about First Lady Mary Lincoln and all that she's done for this country? Well, you know, she's she's a fascinating woman, I think. You know, all, all the writings about her either excoriate her as being a horrible person or they, you know, they laud her as being greater than her husband, both of which are wrong. The truth, as always, is somewhere in the middle. But, you know, Mary... So she is very important as being the wife of Abraham Lincoln, because, you know, anyone who's married knows that your spouse is an integral part of your life, whether they help you make decisions or you can just bounce ideas off of them or whether they just make your life happy and complete being at home or with children. I mean, just being a spouse is an incredible, an incredible um, part of anyone's life. And so you know, Abraham Lincoln is the one everyone's interested in. So you can't fully understand who he was unless you understand who Mary was and, and who they were together as a couple and how they impacted each other. I also think that um, Mary had some very severe mental illness. And, you know, when I was writing my books on her, I found 14 members of the Todd family who had mental illness. So it was a Todd family trait. And so looking at her and, you know, through the years, as I wrote books and articles and did talks, you know, I, I would meet a lot of people who had bipolar disorder or who, who had loved ones with bipolar, or, you know, I was, uh, connected with the, uh, uh, national association of mental illness and all these things. So, you know, Mary is, is a, a brighter example than most because she is a historical figure that we can understand a little bit about, you know, she had 13 years of schooling more than most men. She was an incredibly intelligent, you know, woman who knew exactly what she was ahead of her time in many ways. Um, But, you know, she had serious problems. And so we can look at that and also understand, you know, that there is a human side to mental illness that sometimes can be forgotten. You know, people, a lot of people say Mary was, you know, like co-president, like Lincoln's greatest advisor, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, 150 years too soon. Uh, I disagree with that. There is no evidence to support that at all. But uh, people like to say that. Uh, but, you know, that also puts a light on, you know, the role of a first lady. You know, should she be, you know, the uh, the head hostess of the White House or should she be a co-president? You know, they're different back then from what they are today. So that's an interesting light as well. Well, listen, your your book was fantastic. What What's next Thank for you. you, though? Give us a sneak preview of what's up with you. What can we look forward to? Sure. Well, you know, it's been a while since I was on a book and I just started a new one about six months ago. And so it is my tentative title is this reminds me of father Abraham Lincoln as seen, remembered 
and honored by his oldest son. And so in my, you know, 10 or so years of writing my biography of Robert Lincoln, I've got thousands of pages of his letters from across the United States. And Robert, he wrote so much about his father. People think he didn't know about his father's life and he cared even less, which is completely untrue. Um, Robert knew great details about his father's life. And although he never wrote a book or articles or spoke about his father, he wrote about him all the time in his personal letters. And there are things in there that no one's ever written in any books. And so I'm kind of compiling all these letters that I already have in my research files. And so I'm putting those into a book so we can really understand Lincoln, the man, much deeper through the eyes of his oldest son, who was 21 when his father died. So he was, you know, he remembers everything about his father, but he's been really ignored by historians. So, yeah, I'm working on compiling all those and typing them in right now. And I'm trying to decide if I want to make it, uh, you know, narrative and focus on a certain group of letters like uh, Ronald White just did in a book about um, the writings of Abraham Lincoln. Um, or if I want to just do a straight up, you know, here's all the letters, do a little intro at each chapter and just kind of have, uh, you know, almost like, a, you know, just a collection of letters, which I don't want to do that, but it might be the easier way to do it. I've got so many letters that have <laughs> so many great things about Abraham Lincoln in them that I can't wait to share with people. But it's, uh, yeah, it's been, I've been transcribing letters for six months now and I'm, I'm maybe halfway through all my files. Nice problem to have, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. So you've got a long way to go, some things to decide, but when do you expect, when do you, what's your goal of it coming out? Um, boy, I don't know. Um, (laughs) yeah, as, as soon as possible, I think realistically probably wouldn't be out till 2024 at the earliest, uh, because I have to, uh, um, I actually don't, all my books have been university presses, so I've never needed an agent. Um, but I want to get an agent this time and, and pitch to the big commercial presses. Cause I'd like to actually see my books in stores and make money off them. So after I transcribe, then I have to start writing and then I have to, uh, pitch agents. Uh, and the, the, just writing a whole book proposal is an art unto itself, which takes a while. So it's, Unfortunately, it'll be it'll be a while yet, but I'm going to try to get this done as soon as I can. But I work fast, so hopefully it'll be just uh, maybe a couple of years. Well, Jason, uh, you've been a terrific guest. We, we've really enjoyed having you on. Hopefully you had a good time on American Flotus and you'll come back again Absolutely. soon. Oh, thank you so much. This has been great. I, I really appreciate it. As you can probably tell, I could talk about Mary and Abraham Lincoln all day. So <laughs> I appreciate you having me on and I'd love to come back anytime. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American Flotus Podcast. We'd like to thank author Jason Emerson for joining us to talk about Mary Todd Lincoln. More information on all of his work can be found on AmericanFlotus.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanFlotus.org. We appreciate your help. American Flotus is produced by American History Studios, graphic design by Prowler Design, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our last word from Mary Lincoln. Quote, I would rather marry a good man 
man of mind with a hope and bright prospects ahead for position, fame, and power than to marry all the houses, gold, and bones in the world.